tuna, tuna sandwich. sandwiches. Brynn loves their tuna sandwiches. <laughs> they get <laughs> chicken on a fucking stick. Chicken on okay. a stick. It's just a chevron. That's all it is. It's but in it's... a gas station. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, wait, do you didn't know that? How would I Carly. ever have known hey, Car- that? Car- Carly, hold on. <laughs> I'm getting hit. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you know what's funny? Some of the best food in this town is at gas stations. Gas station. Hundred percent. Did we get that? Yep. So I like that yep. to be our opener for Mississippi. Welcome back, everybody. Let me bring up speed. We're 600 miles southwest of Asheville, in the belly of the American South, Oxford, Mississippi. Ten hours on the road today. We are beat. We just pulled up to the place of Carly's cousin Bryn and her fiancé John. They're putting us up for the night. They're also cooking us dinner. So, John, what are you doing now? I'm working with the landscaping dude. Oh, that's right. For the summer. Yeah, so I used you get to, to work outside. University, but now I'm yeah, now I'm with this guy. He's like, yeah, in Mississippi summer. It's awesome. Oh, it's really not bad. I like it. See, Being in Oxford puts us in an awkward position. Oxford is a college town, home to Ole Miss University. A college town made even small in the summer. If you're a street musician, you wouldn't find much luck here trying to get by. That put our chances at finding a busker on the street somewhere close to zero. Then we got a hot tip in the form of an email. A man by the name of Adam reached out to us, told us he had done some busking in his younger days, and that if we were interested, he'd like to talk. But the truth was, we weren't interested at all. We were tired, we were hungry, I wanted a whiskey, Carly wanted a glass of wine, and above all, both of us didn't want to be wasting our time. We figured Oxford could be our day off, one last day of rest before we start to head further south and things really start to get crazy. And we sat for a minute. And then we stopped being stupid. We both reminded each other that the whole reason that we got into this trip was to talk to as many street musicians as we can find. And here was somebody offering a unique experience in a town that we otherwise thought was going to be a snipe hunt. We'd be idiots not to at least talk to him. We made arrangements to meet him outside a bar called The Blind Pig later that night. You guys, this was so good. I'm pretty sure we're going to go out and do this interview... Have a couple drinks together, and I'm going to come home and eat a second full dinner of exactly what we just had. Perfect. Our problem was we didn't know anything about Adam. We knew he's a professor at the University of Mississippi, and that he currently plays under a band called the Blues Doctors. But that's about it. To make matters worse, when he didn't show up on time, we started to get a bit antsy. I think I got catfish. I think I get busker catfish tonight. I'm for real though. He's, he's an associate professor at the University of Mississippi. Wait, see, the Blues Doctors, two man band, Adam Gussow and Alan Gross, aka the Blues Doctors, are Mississippi blues veterans that play a mix of down home Delta standards and urban grooves. Then, all of a sudden, there he was. He looked to be about mid 50s, average height, skinny, with white blonde hair. Wearing the kind of glasses you often see on professors. No Patrick pants. No tattoos running the length of his body. 
Adam Gusso looked like every other Joe somebody living in Oxford. He didn't fit the mold of a busker, and he certainly didn't have the look of somebody who had lived the trials and tribulations of the street. When we sat down with him in a brick-laid alley behind the bar, he seemed more skeptical of us than we were of him. Then the mics turned on, and then that funny thing happens when all your preconceived notions start to change. Okay, so, uh, so my name is uh, Adam Gusso. I live in Oxford, Mississippi right now, but I'm a native of Rockland County, which is the first county north of New York City, west of the Hudson. I'm 57 years old. Uh, born in 1958. I'm an associate professor of English and Southern Studies here at the University of Mississippi. What, should I, what else should I put out front? No, that was great. <laughs> I'm too overeducated. I'm overeducated for a busker, but Perfect. I'll give you all that stuff. So let me, what I should first do maybe is just kind of sketch my sort of work life as a busker, sure. because I'm not currently somebody who does much busking. Sure. It's not the way that I make my living, but my experience as a busker um, began in 1984. When I left graduate school, I was an English grad student, a master's student at Columbia. The woman that I'd lived with for five years left me for another guy in the program. And I found when I teach blues harmonica or when I talk to buskers, scratch the surface, there's often a deep hurt somewhere there. And I went to Europe that summer with a buddy of mine, a grad student, and I threw some harmonicas in my backpack. And I started playing on the streets in Paris with a guy but I ended up leaving my friend. We sort of split up for a couple of weeks, and I played in Avignon, the French Riviera, Cannes, Nice. And it so transformed my life that when I came back to, to America, not only did I not go back to grad school, I wrote a, I sort of, I had been a Jack Kerouac scholar. I wrote my own version of, you know, sort of on the road in Europe as a somebody becoming a busker. So I just kind of had this outpouring. So... One thing I learned very early is that busking has the power to transform lives, transform spirits. In that 10-year span from 1984 to 1994, what my spirit made me do was go out and get more experience. And it took, it was only one summer after that, it was the summer of 85, when I, when I, when I was playing walking down the street and a, uh, a black harmonica player, a, turned out to be my mentor, Nat Riddles, the late Nat Riddles, kind of heard me playing, pulled his cab up, turned around and sort of said, was that you playing? And I said, yeah. And he became my mentor and he played on the streets. In the and so Adam States. starts to follow Nat Riddles, this blues harmonica icon. And in turn, Nat teaches him how to become a street musician, where to play, what to play, how to play it, essentially just handing down his craft. And after he left New York in the fall of 85, that's when I first went out and began to basically play solo harp for real with, an, with a mouse amp. I got the same amp everybody in New York back then was playing. I still got two mouse amps. Now, if, if that had been the sum total of my experience, which is what I thought it was going to end up being, when I came back home, I said, time to get a straight job, time to grow Why? up. Why? Well, um, I would have been 28, undergraduate at Princeton, graduate degree from Columbia, 
like with the expectation I wanted to be a writer but the expectation is at a certain point you got to make money somehow family was totally clear like they're, they're cool my, my mom thought it was probably a good thing that I was out there doing stuff like this she thought I was too uptight good good for her I, I have really I have good parents that way um, but I thought I'd need to get a straight job and I got a straight job and I lasted exactly one morning and I quit at lunch <laughs> I quit at lunch because the woman who hired me lied about what the guy I was working for. She said he's really nice, and he was just a jerk. And I realized it right away, and I was like, I'm out of there. I had that, I guess you could say I had that busker's attitude, which is like, oh, my God, not an indoor, an indoor gig, the wrong kind of gig. That's prison. I'm gone. You know, if you're called to this, I was, I was called. If you're called to this, you're called to this. And you're watching them, and you, there's something in what they're doing that, that just you know that they're doing something that's at least as worthwhile as what you're doing. See, and I felt, and in New York, I felt that. Now, so the early 80s was, everybody had these mouse amps, right? They're, they're battery-powered. They were portable stage monitors that were invented in the late 70s. And, and I remember watching in 81, 82, guys on the weekends would have these things. And so you, on the weekend, you could go down and just sit back, and there'd be big crowds of people, and these street, these... We're completely drawn in. He's throwing out names and songs and movements in the blues and what it was like busking in the city. And when he couldn't find the words, he'd reach into his back pocket. I did bring a harmonica. to the blind my baby's love caused the sun to shine she's my sweet little thing it's a, it's a it's a half step up from the, the a flat that i usually yeah. use he plays an e flat that was great. but but i did it yeah well I we start to get completely carried away and he stops and tells us that that wasn't the reason why i wanted to talk to us that his busking life really didn't get started until he met satan on the streets in harlem so why, why am I here? It would be because October of 1986, after I'd sort of quit at least one job after coming home from busking in Europe, I was driving through, through Harlem uh, across 125th Street. And I, at that point, I was tutoring in the South Bronx. So I had kind of a really bad-paying part-time gig and was driving across 125th and got to the state office building and saw a guy playing and, and realized that I'd seen him one time before, a couple of years earlier, when I was still in graduate school. And I, that guy back then, I had thought was like incredible. And here I am in Harlem in 86, I've had all this experience and suddenly here's this same guy. He's sort of gray beard, um, obviously black guy playing in Harlem and playing a hi-hat cymbal with one foot and there's a crowd, kind of a small crowd around him and there's a woman dancing kind of in front of him. So I stopped my car and um, I asked people, who is who is he? You know, I watched him for a while, and I said, who is that? And they go, oh, him, that's Satan. Everybody in Harlem knows Satan. Everybody in Harlem knows Satan. My name being Adam, I should play with him so we could say Adam and Satan played on the streets of Harlem. So I came back the next day with my stuff, and I played. And I'm still playing with him 30 years later. Man, learn to know yourself. Know yourself. Not what they name you, it's what you are. Find out what you are. 
I shall forever play music. That's what I'm going to do. What makes me the prince of darkness is I can go into the darkness of my mind and come out with beautiful things. For the last five years, one of New York City's busiest street corners has been a stage for two extraordinary blues musicians. They call themselves Satan and Adam. They've recently recorded an album and have been courted by the big time, but for now, they still prefer the spotlight in Harlem on 125th and Broadway. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all Saturday too. No matter whatever the weather, baby, let me tell you what, it better never. It better never rain on you. I love the way you walk, the way you talk, the doors that go out and come through. Oh, most of all, what made me walk all so tall. He and I, we, we quickly, I mean, I became his harmonica man. And the first day I played, of course, the crowds, we got crowds just because, like, who's this white boy? Who's, who's this white boy playing with the man who turned out to be, I didn't know at the time, but his name was Sterling McGee. Nobody called him that. I never called him that until much, much later. I called him what everybody else called him, which was Satan or Mr. Satan. But he was a guy who'd had a whole R&B career, played with King Curtis. Marvin Gaye, James Brown, Lil Anthony and the Imperial, Noble Thin Man Watts, Edda James. But he says he hated the industry and the egos, and that he's happiest playing out on the streets. Ask him about his inspiration, and he doesn't offer a name, but a story about one summer back home in Mississippi. I went down behind Uncle Eddie Boy Johnson's house, and I sat back there by the chestnut tree with my Uncle Willie Allen, Uncle Elihu, and all of us would go back there and get chestnuts. And here's a bird up there in the chestnut tree whistling jazz like nobody could play. I mean, he was doing some ridiculous mess. And I said, I can't go get anybody. And he was clear. He wasn't missing no notes. And he whistled on Charlie Parker, Cannonball Latterly, Lee Morgan, George Benson, and none of them ain't done no mess this bird have done. So I heard him in the harmonics, and it gave me a three-octave idea. No joke. From a bird. And we had a five-year odyssey of playing on the street. Playing, U2 came by, so there's a famous sort of clip. People will tell you, yeah, those guys were out there when U2 came by in the summer of 87. We're in Rattle and Hum for 39 seconds. I have a white cowboy hat, and I'm sitting kind of with my legs splayed, looking really awkward, and he's... He's doing his thing with two hi-hat cymbals and playing guitar and doing freedom for my people. And, but that was early in the whole thing. I mean, we went on, by the fall of 1990, we were playing in a, in a lesbian bar in, in Greenwich Village called Kelly's, um, you know, playing w marriages for women. It was a new thing for me. I'm looking for a date. I can't get a date in the bar. But I, and then our, the woman who, who managed Bo Diddley and Wilson Pickett and the village people came in and said, uh, I love what you guys do. I want to manage you, you know come and give me a call. And next thing I know, we're on tour with Bo Diddley. So we toured in Europe for the for summer of 1991. Our first album is out, and suddenly we're a national touring act after having been buskers in Harlem. So we went from, you talk about the streets to the suites. We literally went, <laughs> we literally went from two guys with a local crowd that loved what we were doing. We didn't even have a name. We we were just, we were Mr. Satan and the white boy. I mean, we didn't have a, we never, we didn't play a gig where we needed a name. Can you imagine going from being an act that didn't even, we were so uncommodified, uncapitalized, we were just, 
we were pure like donations and the occasional gig at a house party or something. But they wouldn't, we didn't have a name. And how often would you guys be out in public? That's a good question. I would, you know, three days a week I would come down, sort of around noon. He'd be out there earlier, probably three or four days a week, occasionally on the weekends, occasionally on a Saturday, which was a great thing. We played through all, all seasons. We take breaks every now and then, but through all the seasons. So we would sweep the, we would sweep the snow off the sidewalk in the winter. I mean, we were crazy that way. But like a little dusting, we would get out there. It didn't really matter because we know we knew what kind of music we were making. So if there's a lesson here for other buskers, it's first of all, you never know who's listening. You never. I mean, that's a great showbiz thing. So we're playing, we're playing a woman's bar in the village on a Sunday afternoon between like the five to eight gig. We had five to eight or five to nine every Sunday for a fall. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's a dead end gig, but the music's good. We're just doing our music. But here's this big time manager who just walks and then we're on the bus with Bo. Castle in, in, in Wales and I mean I remember the names of we're playing a huge club in London and how did that how did that affect your music did it change I mean you're losing something when you lose the well, street well here's what's interesting yeah I remember so yes you do lose something when you lose the street first of all anytime we were in a context after that where we're on an outdoor stage it felt natural because right. we're used to the outdoor thing we used to joke about you know oh is that an indoor gig when we first started to play in clubs, we felt like we had to have two amps each. So we went from little 5-watt amps to, like, whatever he had. He had two 50-watt amps. Crazy loud. And, like, we played little restaurants, and it was like, I got an ulcer. 
basically the first time we began to try to move indoors. Like, so uh, there, there are going to be adjustment pains when you move the street thing into a different context. You know, the, w- buskers have it really easy in one respect because your audience is always changing. You don't have to have a lot of material. Now, we did have a fair amount, but you can get by with one set. You can repeat. I mean, it always feels like cheating to me. But you can, if you've got a good song, you can repeat it every half hour with no problem. Nobody cares. Right. You can play a song forever. This guy played, you know, he would play his songs forever. I mean, for over half a decade, these guys, Satan and Adam, were an oddity that became a cultural icon in Harlem. You have a cryptic, mystic guitar player and an Ivy League white boy playing harmonica. I mean, you got to think about it. New York in the 80s and 90s was crawling its way out of some really brink times. Vice violence, huge racial divide. And here you have... Satan and Adam kind of being a counter-narrative to it. I mean, it's just two guys busking on the street, but that's not always an easy thing to do. New York in the late 70s was definitely not good, and it was starting to, you know, Fort Apache, the Bronx, was sort of late 70s in New York. I never had any problem at all. And I'm going to tell you about my extended experience playing on the streets in Harlem, and I never saw a gun pulled or a knife pulled. Uh, I was never threatened physically with any of those things, although there was one, just one out of, you know, out of my five-year experience, one kind of bad experience. But, and, and the experience happened in 1989, so imagine I've had two and a half years of really good experience. Uh, and, and often the experience was like older guys who would come by, they'd sort of look at me, they'd listen to the sound, they'd look at the amp, and then... And, it was sort of a double take. Lots of people who really just grooved to the music we were making. I had a guy who put an African medallion, kind of ran up and sort of put one around my neck, <laughs> a leather medallion that I kept for a while. Um, I, you know, so you earned this. When you're in Harlem, you wear this. I remember that really well. But, I, but, there, but the summer of 89 was the summer that Do the Right Thing came out. And so it was a very tense summer in New York. Dago Wab, Ganny, Garlic Bread, Pizza Slinging, Spaghetti Benning, Vic Damone, Perry Como, Luciano Pavarotti. Gold chain wearing fried chicken and biscuit eating monkey, eight baboon, big guy, fast running. You little slanty eyed, mean old speaky American, own every fruit and vegetable stand in New York. You Goya bean eating 15 in a car, 30 in an apartment, Menudo, meet a meet a Puerto Rican cocksucker. Yeah, you! Everybody thought it was gonna create riots in New York. And it came out, and it didn't create riots, but it was very, it was a hot summer. What I remember from writing in a journal, it was, there were 40 days in a row where the high was 90 or above. Most people don't remember that element of the do the right thing summer. It was that hot for that long. So it was a crazy hot summer. And we're playing on the streets all summer long. One day, I went up to, I sort of, as I usually did, Sterling would be playing. Um, I would sort of drive, park my car, kind of get out. And I think I got out, and there were there was a young, not young, black guy with those Malcolm X glasses, sort of, sort of like this. Um, and I, he sort of said something like, "Don't you know? Don't smile at me, white boy." And I hadn't even seen the guy. And I was like, "I'm not smiling at you. I didn't even see you." And he sort of went by. The next thing I know, as I'm setting up, he and a friend came back, and he went up to Sterling, to Mr. Satan, and said, "Why is this white boy playing with you?" Sterling said, I don't know who you're calling a white boy. It's my harmonica man. You're harmonica man. And he sort of laughed, and he goes, 
you know, hey, everybody, we got us a Negro right here. To the guy I'm playing with who takes no disrespect from anybody, he yells at everybody. And then he comes over to me and goes, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm here to play. What, do you love black people? So it was a very, it was a very rough moment. And I basically took a deep breath, stopped, stood up, and kind of told him where I was coming from. Basically, what happened was the guy kind of backpedaled. Sterling started to find his voice as I found mine. Sterling kind of yelled at the guy and said, don't be picking on him. You should be picking on the people out in Bensonhurst that are doing all that mess. And, and, and then some other guy who was a friend of the young guy kind of came up, and I'd seen this guy before. He basically threatened me without threatening me. It was, it was classic signifying. He says, well, look, he goes, I've seen you here. And I said, look, I'm not, I'm not the problem. I'm just playing music with this guy. He goes, yeah, well, all right. But he goes, but I can't, you know, nobody can take responsibility for what some crazy young guy might do. He goes, I don't have any problem with you personally. Not me and you have no problem, but some crazy young guy might not see it the same way. So, and then sort of they walked away. And, I, you know, I had never stood on that street in Harlem and looked out and seen guys with, you know, the Benzes going by with... I'd never thought, like, I'm in trouble, I'm, da- you know, I'm in a dangerous neighborhood. Suddenly, I am saying, I'm, shit, my ass is on the line. My ass is on the line. Yeah. And then I had a really, I stayed away. Sterling was like, yeah, people are really upset. Oh, then what happened is Yusef Hawkins got shot in Bensonhurst two days later. And I thought, crap. That Yusef Hawkins, who was an innocent, totally innocent guy, going to, you know, buy a used car. And people said, you're dating Gina's. It was a really bad scene, and Sterling was like, yeah, you better stay away. I, nothing personal. You just better let things calm down. And I thought about it, and I thought, why should I assume that I'm protected, why, that he can protect me from everything that could possibly go wrong? So I thought, do you want to continue to play this music or not? And it was a very important moment because I, at first I was like, well, you can, you can just never go back. And it was nice knowing you. Then I thought, but well, you earned this gig. You know? You earn this gig. What do you do? So I did two things. Number one is I didn't smoke. I had been a runner, but Sterling smoked. I started to, like, accept a cigarette from him because that would, I would sort of forget. It would chill me out a little bit. And the second thing is that, that that African medallion that that guy gave me, the one day when somebody really, a young black guy who liked what I was doing, went up and said, I love what you do. Take this. Wear this. I had it at home. I took it off the hook where I had it. I put it on. It was like the mojo thing, you know, the kind of like, somebody loves me. And then, of course, things normalize. And, it, and, you know, when I went back down, there was one of our, the regulars who would show up with their folding chair. He says, oh, those two guys, they weren't even from Harlem. They were from Brooklyn, you know. <laughs> they had no business, no business messing with what we're doing here, you know. Splitting your infinitives. This week, revivalism, not revivalism this week. Fucking ain't great. I'm just saying, it's not good practice.
Revivalism This Week is brought to you by DC Podfest, held this year in our nation's capital on November 6th, 7th, and 8th at the DC Wonder Bread Factory. Listen to industry experts, participate in creative workshops, see your favorite podcasts live, eat some free food. This year's speakers and panelists include Hot Pods Nick Qua, The Timbers Eric McQuaid, Podcast Broadcast Brittany Jesuit, and of course, yours truly of Goat Rodeo. Purchase tickets today at dcpodfest.com and don't miss your chance to meet, mingle, learn from, possibly date some of the best and brightest minds in podcasting. DC Podfest, where every dream you've ever had about anything ever will come true. Tell your friends. actually tell you how the busking thing ended. It's Mayor Giuliani. So, and this is a really important element of New York sort of busking life, especially in Harlem. Giuliani comes in, and one of the first things he does is decide to clear everybody, street vendors, the couple of harmonica players and guitar players who are out there, everybody clear off 125th Street. And so we had no place to play. But by that point, we already had our touring career, so the busking thing was sort of over. So you went from busking to concerts, but that still doesn't explain how you got here. Yeah. So what's next? So you wanted to know kind of the next chapter. The next chapter was 1991. We have our first CD called Harlem Blues. It's, we, it was recorded right off the street. So I, when I listened, it was the, and it's, it's our best album because it was just all of the stuff, we, all the energy, all the craziness. We used our street amps. Then we're a regional to national touring act. We basically tour east of the Mississippi, but we do festivals nationally and occasionally internationally. And then I decided I want to go back to grad school after 10 years out. So in 1994, I, I applied and got back in, and I was a Ph.D. student at Princeton in the English department. That's how I end up here. And so, in, so that was 1994. For another four years, we continue. I'm basically a grad student. On the weekends, I'm going off on the road. In the summer, you know, no school in the summer, so I get to go and play festivals. In 1998, he had kind of a nervous breakdown and basically um, gave it up. And so that was, the, that was it for Satan and Adam. So we had our, from 1991 to 1998 was our, was our reign as, as kind of a touring act. Well, if, you're, if you call yourself Satan and then your father dies and you decide that you're next in line for the death thing, it could throw you over the edge and that's sort of what happened to him he he kind of had a after his breakdown satan would go missing for the next three years during that time he would suffer a stroke and lose his ability to play the guitar like he had in harlem when he resurfaced in florida sometime later he'd already started a process of recovery trying to regain his ability to play as fate would have it adam would leave new york as well after receiving his phd he became a professor at the University of Mississippi, 
just a few hundred miles away from where Satan was making his recovery. For both of them, their lives as buskers was behind them. For Satan, he had his health and well-being to worry about. And for Adam, he now had a career and a family. But Adam was already finding new ways to channel his craft in his new home. The Saturday that we had our big annual festival here in Oxford, the Double Decker Festival, yeah. set up and used our battery-powered amps and played. I had my nine-year-old son make his public debut as a trumpet player on the street, and the video's there. Sean Gusso is his name, so you can find that. I paid him, you know, after he played, you know, the one note on his trumpet, dun, dun, da, 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 and I showed him how to do that one thing. He's because he's a he's a great natural talent, but he doesn't want to practice. But I said, if I can just get him out there, I told my wife, get him out there and let him feel what it's like to be on the street, to make music, to have the crowd coalesce, to have money flying at your feet, and then to get paid off. So I gave him this ultimate peak experience in his first experience busking. Did he love it? Yeah, $10. He was like, he was like I'm a member of the Blues Doctors. I said, <laughs> <laughs> And now his head is really big. He goes, I'm the only kid in my school who's played on the street. But Satan and Adam would go on to reunite, playing the occasional festival and music hall. Only now Adam is the one playing the kick drum and cymbals. And even when you hear them play, they still have that same passion that made them the busking icons that they were. For the pair of them, busking was about two separate acts of going against the grain. For Adam, going into a culture and an environment where he knew he was a black sheep. For Satan eschewing a life of playing with the stars so that he could play and live on his terms. We asked Adam if he had a moment or a story that encapsulated what busking represented in his life. In the summer of 86, but this is before I come back to New York and end up meeting Sterling McGee and find my big gig in Harlem, when I was in Avignon, um, I, this, was, this was, for me, is a very revealing moment. I'd gone off to Europe. I told my parents I, had, I took whatever money I had. And I said, I'm going off to Europe with, with Bill Collins, my guitar guy from New York, because we played all spring long in New York. We had our Washington Square Park. Man, we were ready. We got stopped by the cops there. We're, we're, we're a little bit hardened, right? Go off to Europe, play Paris. I said, Bill, we've got to play the Beauborg in Paris. I said, Europe's un- the summer's unbelievable. You'll Trust me, you- he's never come back. So I was right, right, in the long run. But we're, we, we play Paris. We a while you kind of fight you know busking partnerships don't always last with young people I ended up in Avignon with no guitar player the summer I'm going to be doing my big busking thing and I started to run out of money and so I I called home and asked my parents to wire me a thousand dollars now what busker can do that right but it didn't come and I waited a week and I got down to, it was like, oh shit, I'm a middle class kid and I'm going to run out of money in Europe. Well, but here's the thing. And I've got a harmonica, I've got an amp, I've got a room, and I'm a fucking busker. So <laughs> you should be making money. Get out there and play. Like, make money. Isn't that why you're here? Oh, I didn't want it to get this real. And so busk, and, and, and one of the interesting things is that sometimes life can teach you, it can kick you. You say you want to be a busk. Okay, life's going to give you a chance to actually do that. And so I remember I, remember I had this French landlady who's like, Monsieur, you know, your, your rent's due. And I was like, I was down to my last two days worth of rent money. And I'm going down every day to the, the bank in Avignon, and the money's not in. 
So I had that moment where I, where I basically got really depressed. And then there's a moment you go, duh, this is, you know, get out there and play like you're like, because it does. Because <laughs> it does. Like, get out there and play. It's, it's just, it's a stupid, trivial moment, but it's like, but, so it's not a romance. There's no romance all of a sudden. It's like, shit, I'm playing to eat. Okay, well, that's where I am. So, good. And I went out and I did it. And I made some money because I didn't want to play solo. And then I went and I played solo, and I and it it worked. I actually turned out to be pretty good. And I got through an afternoon and a night, and I actually had a really I could do the solo thing. I had a crowd around me as a solo harp player. Adam told us you never know who's listening. I think for Carly and I, the opposite is true. You never know who's playing. We didn't think we'd meet anybody in Oxford with something worthwhile to say. But on a warm night in Mississippi, we met Adam, one of the greatest harmonica players in the world today. And with his words and with his music, we met the blues. We met Satan. And we can't thank him enough for that. Oh, and if you're wondering, don't worry. We were still able to get those glasses of whiskey and wine under the wire. Boo, Dan, I hardly know her. Boo, Bradley. Boo, Dan, I hardly know her. Let's go. Chug. Lonnie, Ian, tap in. Lonnie! Lanny! Lanny, you listen it up and you listen good. This is how we do things in America. We eat chicken on a stick and we like it. Revivalism Busk is produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Special thanks this week goes to Adam Gusso, Sterling McGee, Bryn Mahan and John Lindbeck, Scott Balsarek, Old Miss University, Don Barris, Chevron, and the Zoom Corporation. Support this week also comes from Audiolog, a brand new platform for audio criticism and commentary. Find essays, reviews, and discover your new favorite programs from a team of writers all across the audio spectrum. You can find out for yourself at audiolog.xyz. You can learn more about Satan and Adam on the streets in Harlem by reading Adam Gusso's memoir, Mr. Satan's Apprentice, available now on Amazon. There's also an upcoming documentary about Satan and Adam by director Scott Balsarek. You can find out more at www.satanandadamfilm.com. Share this show with everybody you know, and be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Goat Rodeo DC. This is Revivalism Busk, and we're Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us. I don't know. Can I spend a night with you?